The Defense Information Systems Agency could not escape a protest after awarding a big IT services contract. And the General Services Administration is ready to expand its approach to simplifying online buying. These are just two of this week's biggest acquisition stories. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller has been following them. He joins me now with highlights. Jason, let's start with the DISA protest to tell us about the contract and the grounds for the protest. Tom, this is for the Defense Enclave Services contract. This is really the main vehicle DOD will use to unify networks across the fourth estate. You know, these include DISA's number one, who released the, the who awarded the RFP and, and released the solicitation, but also, you know, like DFAS and Washington Headquarters Services and DCM and DLA, um, military health system, all these organizations that kind of don't fall into the major services, but but still are, are hugely important. And, and Tom, DE, you know, Defense Enclave Services, DES, uh, disawarded about a, a couple weeks ago to Lidos. It was $11.2 billion contract over roughly 10 years. Uh, they had gotten several initial bids, and then they kind of whittled it down to two finalists. The two finalists were Lidos and GDIT. General Dynamics IT did submit a protest to GAO. And uh, what's interesting about this, Tom, is not so much that they submitted a protest. It's kind of like no duh. I mean, it's a huge contract. It's one contract to unify 22 different agencies, 600 separate contracts being kind of combined into this one, 850 work sites across the, the world, really. So this is just one of those, if you're not in, you're out. So so you do everything to, to, to try to stay in. And, and what I'm being told about this protest specifically, Tom, is that GDIT is challenging everything about the procurement, everything that DISA did. They're challenging DISA's conduct of discussions, their technical evaluation, their price evaluation, their past performance evaluation, and the resulting trade-off decision. You know, Tom, all of these are best value trade-offs, price plus what the technology and, and other things they bring to the table. So we try to get a little more details, but GDIT would not comment. A couple of things here. One, these long-term contracts, as always, are taken as annuities. But it sounds like GDIT was taking notes throughout the whole process and was ready to go with a very comprehensive protest here. How long does GAO have to decide here, and could they go to court of federal claims after that? First of all, GAO has until June 20th, about 100 days. That's their due date. You know, that's their typical due date. So we'll see something maybe by the summer. Yes, GDIT could, of course, go to the court of federal claims if they don't feel like they're going to get a fair shake at GAO or if they feel like this is you know, not responding well enough or if they feel like they may lose to GAO but believe their, their case is strong. I think what we need to look for between now and June is, and, and you know, we won't get to see a lot of it until, but you know, if they'll they'll kind of go through the discovery process, provide documentation, provide feedback. GAO will will start looking at this feedback from from GDIT, from GAO. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if Lidos submitted some paperwork and documentation as well. And what I think will end up happening is we'll see fairly soon whether DISA believes they're going to stand up for themselves and say, hey, we did a great job. We believe everything we did was correct. Or if DISA says, okay, maybe there were some mistakes. Let's pull back the award and relook at it and then reaward it. That, that's going to be a key piece. We'll see maybe six to eight weeks from now. Could be a little longer. These types of protests are so important to the companies, you know, in terms of I have to get on, I have to be part of it, that I could imagine GDIT taking this all the way to, to the nth degree. The other thing we need to keep in mind about GDIT, they had just gotten pulled out from under them, DISA pulled out from under them, the MillCloud 2 platform. So that's something else that's happening to GDIT. So I think there's some concern there, and they probably see this as as an important win for them if they could turn things around. And in the meantime, work does not proceed? Generally speaking, you know, the, the GAO and, and, and DISA has not commented on this, but basically work tends to put a stay on the contract. There are certain things that DISA could do, but they're not going to 
kickoff to have kickoff meetings and begin any kind of transition efforts. Uh, so, so right. So this pod puts a big hold on this uh, DES contract until at least uh, June or or until GAO slash DISA make some decisions. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. And at GSA, they're trying to simplify online buying. It seems like they've been trying to do that for 20 years. <laughs> but what's the what's the latest gambit here? Well, Tom, as just a reminder, if you remember back of June of 2020, GSA made awards for something called the Commercial Platform Initiative. These were three awards to test out the e-commerce platform. The awards went to Amazon, Fisher Scientific, and Overstock.com. And the whole idea was for agencies to buy products under the micro-purchase threshold of $10,000 more easily, uh, get better data, uh, better process, understand kind of all the pieces and parts that happen when you buy these small dollar purchases. And over the course of the last two, two and a half years, this has kind of been getting going, kind of picking up some steam. GSA currently says we like what we've seen so far in this, what they call a proof of concept. Okay, how could we expand it? How could we move on from this initial thinking and, and bring in more vendors, bring in more opportunities? And so I think part of what this RFI that GSA released was, hey, vendors, what do you think? Let's get some feedback. What kind of model would make sense? What can you do to really improve our, our proof of concept? And and that RFI was uh, just released uh, maybe about a week ago, Tom. And uh, currently uh, they're, they're looking for, for vendor feedback by the uh, end of March, March 30th. I guess vendors would be happy with anything that doesn't end up being a reverse auction online. <laughs> that that works for certain things, just not, 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 not often enough for, for, for GSA and a lot of the vendors. You're right. And how successful has the current commercial platform been? I think if you ask GSA, they'll tell you it's been great. Over the last 18 months, they have, you know, you went from four agencies to 20 agencies participating. Uh, you know, they have a lot more eligible cardholders. They say at 40,000 eligible cardholders doesn't mean every one of them is using these 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 platforms. Uh, at the same time, Tom, you know, I reported back in, in October that GSA had to make some course corrections with this effort. They thought the initial market value was about $6 billion. Now they've brought it back down to about $500 million. Still a lot of money, don't get me wrong, you know, but, but there's a big difference between $6 billion and $500 million. And, and then on top of it, you know, Congress is not happy that GSA decided, again, as we reported back in October, to not to test the other models. There's the e-marketplace model and the e-platform model. They said it's too costly. It wouldn't serve our, our needs right. So in the 2022 Defense Authorization Bill, Congress said not so fast. We, we You will test these other platforms. You will look at other alternatives besides e-commerce. And I think that comes from, I think, some, some lobbying from vendors uh, because they're frustrated that GSA is kind of held the market to only three vendors and not expanded it to others. And I think there's some frustration from folks like the Coalition for Government Procurement who've said, why not test it out? Why not give other vendors opportunities to take part in this $500 million market? So I think that's part of the reason why this RFI came out. I think GSA may have, and I'm guessing here a little bit, Tom, uh, seen the handwriting on the wall and said, well, the NDAA is going to have this provision. We better get going and start thinking about what this could potentially look like. Interesting, because when you mention, you know, $500 million or even $6 billion, that's still a tiny outfit, you know, compared to just the GSA multiple award schedules. It is not a lot of money. I think the GSA multiple award schedules did something like $36 billion in 2021 alone. So you're right, it's not a ton of money. But a lot of these small buys are happening in one-offs, right? So uh, a, a contracting officer in Utah has a credit card. They call up Best Buy and, and, and buy themselves a new, not themselves, but buy somebody a new desktop or a new computer. And instead, GSA says, we can collect better data, we can get better pricing, we can give you more information about what you're spending so you can 
be smarter about the spending. It all goes under the spend under management, the category management initiative that the the successive administrations have been pushing for the last decade. So I think that while the, the market itself is huge uh, in terms of $500 million, uh, it's really more about, GSA says, data and understanding buying patterns, buying processes, and improving uh, you know, your efforts around small disadvantaged businesses, women-owned businesses, and, and the like. Yeah, a lot of competing influences, and they don't want to waste billions of dollars, $5 at a time, basically. And I think that's part of the concern. I mean, GSA said back in October in the report to Congress when we reported on this, they've seen about $6 million in sales through last July, and about 75% of which came over the last six months. So that's why they're starting to see some uptake. When we reported it back in July, it was about 13 agencies, including big ones like VA and Justice and Labor and Commerce and HHS. Now there's up to 20, which includes you know Homeland Security Department, the Office of Government Ethics, and SBA, some smaller ones. So I think that there's a there's GSA sees a desire for it. And what they hope is, okay, well, what other opportunities are there? We understand, you know, 18 months in how this works. What else do we need to understand? How can we continue to improve? And I think that's some of the questions they're asking in this RFI. And, you know, to GSA's credit, this RFI is not overly complicated. They're not asking 400 questions. They're just basically saying, how can we get this done better? How can we, you know, ensure good delivery times, order visibility, tracking information, you know, usual things that a lot of these vendors already are probably supplying, just not in a more coordinated way, which is what I think in the end result is what these commercial platforms are trying to do. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. 